I don't know who needs to know this, but Julia Ward Howe had a serendipitous connection to her most famed creation, Battle Hymn of the Republic. Hi, my name is Neerja and I don't know why, but today my mind keeps going to the Battle Hymn of the Republic and its promise about the Grapes of Wrath. Marching Song of the Union Army during Civil War has a definite impact on the listener, more so if one knows where it comes from. In 2010, Dominic Tierney wrote a beautiful piece for Atlantic magazine about Battle Hymn of the Republic in order to commemorate the almost 150 years of its publishing. You see, uh, Battle Hymn was first printed in Atlantic Monthly in year 1862. First printed, yes. But that's not when and how it first came into being. Seed of the song were planted as a folk hymn, sung and passed down as an oral tradition somewhere in the early 1800s. It was known as Say Brother Will You Meet Me at the Kanan's Happy Shore. Chorus to this over time developed into the ever popular Glory Glory Hallelujah. William Steffi, a Philadelphia bookkeeper and insurance agent had put it to music. It became quite popular and as was common in those days, there were other similar hymns and ditties sung in the same refrain and tune. It was then adopted by the 2nd Infantry Battalion of the Massachusetts Militia known as the Tire Battalion to something called John Brown's Body. It had a rather coarse sort of lyrics but their heart was in the right place. This was a marching song based on the abolitionist John Brown who had been hanged in 1859 for leading an attempted slave insurrection at Harper's Ferry. Remember this fact. Civil war had started in April 1861 and John Brown's body was first sung publicly in May 1861 at the flag raising ceremony at Fort Warren in Massachusetts. So the same year in November, Julia Ward Howe and her husband Simon visited Washington DC and met Abraham Lincoln at the White House. During this visit, she also visited a Union Army camp just outside Washington DC on Upton Hill, Virginia. Julia's friend James Freeman Clark, a minister and theologian, accompanied her. While looking this story up, I came across a great little book, a biography of Julia, written by her daughters Laura and Maud. It actually won a Pulitzer. In this book, they explain the scenario that resulted in the creation of Battle Hymn. I will read from it this passage. Keep in mind that her husband Simon is being addressed as doctor because, of course, he was one. These were the days of civil war. We must return back to its opening year to record an episode of importance to her and to others. In the autumn of 1861, she went to Washington in company with Governor and Mrs. Andrew, Mr. Clark and the doctor, who was one of the pioneers of the Sanitary Commission, carrying his restless energy and indomitable will from camp to hospital, from battlefield to bureau. She longed to help in some way but felt that there was nothing she could do except make lint, which we were all doing. 
I could not leave my nursery to follow the march of our armies. Neither had I the practical deftness which the preparing and packing of sanitary stores demanded. Something seemed to say to me, you would be glad to serve, but you cannot help anyone, you have nothing to give, and there is nothing for you to do. Yet, because of my sincere desire, a word was given me to say, which did strengthen the hearts of those who fought in the field and of those who languished in the prison. Returning from a review of troops near Washington, her carriage was surrounded and delayed by the marching regiments. She and her, and her companions sang to beguile the tedium of the way, the war songs which everyone was singing in those days. Among them, John Brown's body lies a-molding in the grave, but his soul is marching on. The soldiers liked this and cried, good for you, and took up the chorus with its rhythmic swing. Mrs. Howe, said Mr. Clark, why do you not write some good words for this stirring tune? I have often wished to do so, she replied. Waking in the grey of next morning, as she lay waiting for the dawn, the word came to her. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. <sighs> Tierney in his article simply says that Clark liked the melody but found the lyrics to be distinctly unelevated the published version ran we will hang old jeff davis from a sour apple tree but the marching men sometimes preferred we will feed jeff, jeff davis sour apples till he gets the diary <laughs> so tldr julia was encouraged to write more apt verses for glory glory hallelujah and she did her biography suggests she did not, however, realize how rapidly the hymn made its way, nor how strong a hold it took upon the people. It was sung, chanted, recited, and used in exhortation and prayer on the eve of battle. It was printed in newspapers, in army hymn books, on broadsides. It was the word of the hour, and the Union armies marched to its swing. It did indeed take a stronghold. It has been the battle hymn for many a times when Americans wish to stare injustice in the face. On April 3, 1968, in Memphis, Tennessee, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave what was to become his last public speech. He spoke eloquent and lyrical as ever about the need to keep the struggle for equality going. Towards the end of his speech, he said, Like anybody, I would, live, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I am not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. He ended his speech with these words, I am not worried about anything. I am not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. As we all know that he was assassinated the next day. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord are his last publicly spoken words. Tierney posits that during grave crisis, Americans instinctively clasp the battle hymn. The song is bound up with the triptych of assassinations in the 1960s. John F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King, Bob Kennedy, 
After JFK died in uh, 1963, Judy Garland sang the battle hymn on her CBS show as a tribute to her personal friend. In April 1968, King quoted the battle hymn and seemed to know that his life was almost over. Two months later, on June 8, the Requiem Mass for Bobby Kennedy ended with the same song, performed by Andy Williams. The battle hymn is the closer. It is the music that concludes great American lives. After 9-11, at the conclusion of a service of prayer and remembrance, at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., the congregation, which included President George Bush, former Presidents Clinton, Carter, Ford, joined voices to sing this defiant anthem. And St. Paul's Cathedral in England played it as well on September 14, 2001. Battle Hymn was also played on September 1, 2018 at the funeral of Senator John McCain. At this point, I think we should really spend a few moments listening to this marching song. I will play a recording of the Battle Hymn. just heard was a rendering of the song by United States Army Field Band. Now uh, let's go back to that small factoid I told you about somewhere at the beginning, John Brown's song, remember? In October of 1859, abolitionist John Brown along with 22 other men, including his three sons, attacked the United States Armory at Harpers Ferry in an earnest effort to initiate a slave revolt in southern states. It has been called the raid that sparked the Civil War. He was defeated and captured. Two of his sons were killed and one escaped. Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson were involved in the battle, capture and imprisonment of Brown. Among those who tried to obtain pardon or leniency for Brown were Ralph Waldo Emerson and Victor Hugo. Hugo wrote an open letter that almost sounds prescient now. He says, Politically speaking, the murder of John Brown would be an uncorrectable sin. 
it would create in the union a, a latent fissure that would be in the long run dislocated. Brown's agony might perhaps consolidate slavery in Virginia, but it would certainly shake the whole American democracy. You save your shame, but you kill your glory. Morally speaking, it seems a part of the human light would put itself out. John Wilkes Booth borrowed a uniform just to gleefully witness the execution of John Brown. During the trials of John Brown, it came to light that a group of six people, known now as Secret Six, had secretly funded and aided John Brown. These men, all abolitionists of varying degrees, acted separately, not as a group. When their connections started coming to light, five of them had to escape to Italy, to Canada, even to insane asylum in one case, to evade capture. One of these secret six was a physician and an advocate of education for the blind. His name was Samuel Gridley Howe and he was married to Julia Ward Howe. I don't know who needed to know this, but now you do.